Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. A reading from 1 Peter. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The grass withers and the flower fades. Kiddos, we do have uh, EGC this morning, that's right. So EGC, uh, 3rd, 4th, and 5th grade is out there, first and second grade, back here with Miss Rose and Miss Tiffany, and uh, the rest of us are going to be in here, and I will tell you, we're going to, we're going to be starting, let me give you just a little vision for where we're at, we're going to be starting a uh, new sermon series today, uh, so for those of you who are happy that we are uh, leaving, I'm not going to, I'm not going to blow anything up over here, am I, Eric? All right. All right, uh, so um, you may be like, oh, good, finally, we're out of the Old Testament. Yes, and then we're going to go right back in. So um, the rest of the fall, once we get to September, uh, we're going to take some time this, uh, over the next few weeks to go through uh, the missional practices, which I'll explain to you in a little bit here, of refuge. Uh, and then in the fall, we're going to do an overview of uh, Deuteronomy. So uh, you think you didn't like it over the summer? Just Wait. Uh, we're going to look at the law, and actually Deuteronomy is a very beautiful picture Moses is giving. I won't get into all that. We'll have time for that. Um, but we're going to spend some time in the fall in Deuteronomy, and then if you really want to get, like if you're a Bible person that like, gets excited about this stuff, then we're going we're to look at the law in Deuteronomy, and then next year we're going to spend time in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to see how Jesus just blows up the entire thing uh, in a fulfilling way, not in a blowing up and getting rid of way. So there you go. Next year and a half, just like that. Uh, today, however, uh, we're going to begin a five-week series going through the missional practices of refuge. We believe, uh, at refuge, we believe there's, there's three primary callings to a follower of Jesus. There is our calling to Jesus and our relationship with him, our calling to one another, his bride, fellow believers, and communal uh, things, and then our our calling as his bride to the world around us. Uh, and so um, with that, at the turn of the year, we've, we've kind of designated, there's times when we try to focus a little bit more on some of these. So the turn of the year, uh, beginning of the year, we, we talk about some of the personal practices, personal disciplines of the Christian life. Um, prayer, meditation, study, fasting. How do we engage in our relationship with Jesus and grow in our relationship and trust with him? And then in the middle of the year, sometime around May-ish, 
uh, which is what we just completed, we, we want to take time to, to look at some of the communal practices. Me and, and the bride, me and the church. Uh, the New Testament is filled with, what we call these is one anothering one another, and the New Testament is filled with teach, encourage, bear with, live in harmony with, rebuke, uh, all of these ways that we want another one another under this big category umbrella of love one another, which is mentioned no less than 17 times in the New Testament, talking about how followers of Jesus are to be with, with each other. And then in the fall, we take time to go through the practices of mission. And some, we try to do this every year, and, and sometimes we hit it better than others, uh, or we pick a certain one. And so the practices of mission that we see, uh, the things that we are to do as we, as we grow uh, as the body of Jesus, that we gather for corporate worship. That is historically always been part of followers of Jesus, that we engage in public faith, that we integrate our work in faith, uh, that we demonstrate and show hospitality, and that we carry out ministries of compassion, mercy, and justice. That is what we see kind of as the overall essence of um, uh, as our practices of the church. And these all, for missional practices especially, a lot of times, some, sometimes I've, been, I've heard these as this is what you do individually. But I want you to know, and this is why we divide it up this way, this is what we do as the body. Some of us are better at things than others, and we do this together as a people. We engage in sharing the good news, which we've already talked about. Um, what, what Paul would say in Colossians as, uh, though you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that Jesus has reconciled you through his, bu- blo- uh, through his blood by his flesh. Let's see. Let me, I always get that part mixed up, but I have it written down. Uh, We have been reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death so that we might be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so as this becomes more real in me and in us, this is how it works its way out as we uh, respond to the world around us. Um, The chronology there is important. We don't practice these things to become holy. We practice these things because we've been made holy. This is what we, this is how we, uh, this is how we demonstrate, am I going nuts with this? I feel like I'm, all right. This is how we demonstrate the reality of what is taking place in us, okay? So this is what we do together, proclaiming in word and in deed this new kingdom reality, the kingdom of grace and mercy, the kingdom of forgiveness, of justice and righteousness, We do this together through word and deed. This is the mission of the church. So today, we're going to start off in 1 Peter, and we are going to, um, hang on, keep fidgeting with it, I'm making it worse. There's a lesson in that, I'm sure. Uh, Today, we're going to start off in 1 Peter with what do we mean when we talk about engaging in public faith as part of the mission. So, Let's talk in 1 Peter. We're going to be in verses 13 through 17, which Scott read. And uh, this is way near the end of the Bible. Uh, This is a letter that Peter wrote to churches in, really in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. 
And he starts off with this. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Uh, first of all, let me start off here. If, if, you are, if you kind of lean to one side or the other in, a, in, in expressing your faith in more of a political type of way, or you, you kind of see that wrapped in there together, which I believe the gospel speaks to politics for sure. But if you, if you err one way or another and, you, and we get done with today and you're like, I felt like all you did was, you, if we get done with today and I haven't offended you enough, email me and I'll do it some more. All right. Um, Peter's writing to a church that was primarily made up of Gentile converts. Uh, and again, this is a Roman province, a modern-day Turkey. Roman emperors were generally fine with whatever religion you wanted to practice as long as your ultimate allegiance and loyalty was to Rome and ultimately to the emperor as divine, divine authority. Well, you would as you can imagine, followers of Jesus had some problems with that. And so followers of Jesus uh, would not bow down to the emperor as a god. Um, they would not participate in many of the Roman feasts and festivals that often involved elements of immorality um, without going into detail that followers of Jesus just didn't participate in. You want, uh, you want me to switch? All right. Perfect, much like the same. All right, you know what? We'll do this one. Is that better? Yeah. All right. Now I feel like a politician. Like I need my. <laughs> All right. So there were a lot of there were a lot of practices, Roman rituals, um, that would require their citizens to do things, and Christians refused to participate in that. Some of them were cultural. Some of the way the, the family was set up. Um, this was a heavily Rome was a heavily patriarchal society. And so women were secondary, at least. Uh, and so there was, there was some disruptiveness when people became followers of Jesus. They would face harassment. They would face even eventual persecution. Um, I, I made mention of this. Christians, Christians get flack now for what we talk about women's rights. In, in Jesus' day, women, Jesus was radical in bringing women to the forefront and bringing them to humanity. And so when, in, in First Peter, uh, when people would become Christian, you would have all kinds of different things. There would be like 
There'd be women's groups uh, that were involved in like cult pagan worship. There were lots of groups involved in cult pagan worship. Uh, and they would go off into the mountains and they would do like women's gatherings. Uh, men were patriarchal. They, were, they didn't have much care for family or spouse or whatever. Those were future laborers, their children, uh, and, and they were business owners and they were taught to treat women as property. And so when somebody became a follower of Jesus, it, it messed with the way that Roman and Greek life went. Uh, if a woman became a follower of Jesus, in some of these groups, uh, followers of Jesus would, would like, they would trust Jesus and they would still be involved in these groups and it would kind of spread throughout some of these women's groups. And women who were wearing jewelry and makeup and fine clothing as a status symbol to, to show who is better than others, uh, all of a sudden they began to kind of dress down a little bit. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't look at that as a, sim, uh, as a status symbol anymore. Um, but if it was... But in a patriarchal society, what the husband believed, what the head of the household believed, everybody believed. You all had a deep conviction with whatever he thought. <laughs> um, and so Peter writes to address these things. If a woman is involved in one of these small women's groups and meets Jesus, Peter tells her, as much as you can, don't disrupt your husband's practices because there could be severe consequences for the husband in business practice, uh, he could face he, his whatever his business was could go uh, could face a lot of backlash. If she met Jesus, she could make a lot of trouble. And so he tells her to to be submissive. Don't make this a big deal because this could be bad. Now we may think, well, see, there you go. Peter also tells the men, if you become a follower of Jesus. Don't force this on your wife. That's huge. That's huge. Because that could cause all kinds of problems for her in her social circles. And for a husband to have any kind of accountability to his wife was a big deal. Does that, like, these are just some of the things that the way Christianity would disrupt Roman practice. Um, and so Peter's writing to this, and he's writing from Rome, and he calls Rome Babylon. Uh, and his message to them has multiple points for encouragement, how to live faithfully, how to walk in these ways while not being arrogant, while claiming and holding to Jesus, um, but ultimately what he's telling them is to hang in there. Hang in there. And I think that's probably a message we could stand to hear over and over again in our own day, right? If you're struggling with your faith, if you're like, man, I don't know. This is a hard culture to walk in. Hang in there. Um, I'll be honest with you, and this is why this, hopefully the sound didn't throw us off too much. Uh, this, is a daunting service. this is a daunting sermon for me to write. Uh, this has kept me up this week for sure, uh, but this is something that I struggle with all the time. Engaging in public faith. And you, might, you may be like, well, don't you mean evangelism? Kind of. Evangelism is a proclamation. I do mean that. I don't mean what we've turned evangelism into, which is more of a sales pitch. Um, this gets corrupted, co-opted on so many levels. It's taken to so many sides. Um, and it can, be, it can be frustrating, but it, it can also be paralyzing. 
right? How do we engage in public faith? Uh, someone, someone said the other day, uh, people in other countries will, will risk their lives to share the gospel, and they're willing to die to share the gospel, but Americans don't want to hurt somebody's feelings so they don't share it. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, maybe. Paul would go into synagogues and argue with priests and rabbis in the synagogues. Arguing was a virtue in Jewish culture. Arguing is not a virtue in American culture. Very much. I, uh, while writing a sermon this week, I saw, I'm, I'm not a friends guy, so I, I don't know all the names, but uh, I, there was an episode, or maybe a clip on something, of friends where they all want, they, none of them like Ross's girlfriend, and so they're all trying to, they all talk behind his back about trying to get him to break up, but nobody's going to say anything to his face. And then Joey finally says something to his face, and he's like, we all hate her. And then what does everybody else do? Oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't hate her. I mean, that's not, you know, they all like back down and just super passive aggressive. Because the last thing we want to do is be honest to somebody's face. I have, a, uh, I have a black pastor friend who called me one time. He, he has been pastoring in a black church his entire life, and then several years ago, he, he started pastoring in a, in a more mixed culture church, and he said, he said, I have a question for you. He said, will white people be uh, honest with you if they're angry with you? And I said, no. <laughs> no. We will do anything we can to avoid it. We may leave and never show up again, or we may overdo the compliments and tell you how much we love you. And if that's happening, know that they're mad about something. I have a friend who, when he doesn't like his wife's meal, will ask for seconds so that she'll never pick up on the fact that he doesn't like it. And so when I told him, we're very passive aggressive, we will not be honest with you, he was like, oh my gosh. It's like I unlocked a level up code for how to understand white people. And he's like, that is super helpful. And I just told him, whenever you need interpretation, let me know. <laughs> um, I remember sitting in a room with a bunch of old school pastors, and one guy, one guy talked about how he had gone around to every house in his neighborhood, knocked on their door, uh, and asked them about Jesus, and if they were prepared for what would happen if they were to die tonight. And... I, I really do think his heart was genuine. I think he did want to tell people about Jesus. Um, he wanted people to know Jesus, and I don't know if this is the only thing that he's known that's been modeled. Uh, but he lamented the fact of how many people were cold to his, his asking the question if they were going to die tonight, um, and, and how many people just slammed the door in his face, didn't want to talk. And I said, what? What were some of their names? What were some of their stories? And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, did you ask anybody's name? Did you ask anybody about where they're at in life? How long they've lived here? What's going on? And, and, and he looked at me, and I don't know if he was like, if his world had just been blown up, and he's like, that's a great idea, or like if he wanted the hand of God to strike down upon me with vengeance and furious anger. I was behind a guy at Starbucks. Uh, and 
I've, I, I had met this guy before, and he, the, the barista had an accent. And he said, that's an interesting accent. Where are you from? And she said, Ethiopia. And he said, oh, are you familiar with the Ethiopian eunuch? I was like, oh, no. Don't go here. And I could tell. She's like, what's your order? And everything in me wanted to be like, I'm sorry. That was awkward. We had new neighbors moved in. This was several years ago. Our, these new neighbors moved in. And word gets out fast somehow that I'm a pastor. Everybody knows by now. They don't care. But uh, these new neighbors, we were hanging out with them. And the, the guy's like, so you're a pastor, huh? Yeah. I hate that question, by the way. What do you do? So you're a pastor, huh? Cool. What, what kind of church is it? What do you guys teach? Every apologetics professor I had in seminary was like, nobody will ever ask you that question. You've got to prepare how to work this in. This is the one that nobody asks. So it's like a fastball down the middle of the plate. And I'm like, oh, you know, like the Bible <laughs> stuff. And internally, I'm like, you idiot. This is, this is what you train for. And we've had, I've had several opportunities to blow it since then um, and, and, uh, and have good conversations and, and just down in flames. Um, I've had delivery guys, and it's the same thing. Well, so what do you do? Dropping off concrete or trees or whatever. Uh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Ah, oh, you know what? I'm a Christian, and let me tell you about this. Man, did you see that protest? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Let's not get into these conversations. And it immediately goes down a political path of, of kind of the us versus them. And, I, and I'm like, oh. And I feel awkward, and I feel overwhelmed. And there's presumptions, and there's miscommunication, having to explain or re-explain or qualify certain things. Some people, I feel like I have to get them unsaved. I'm like, no, that's not a Christian, actually. Uh, the other night, I was at a, I was at a uh, bear with me a little bit, at a Facebook, there was a, a, there's a group on Facebook. I'm not part of it, but I've been asked to kind of be a pastor, pastoral representative at some of the gatherings. There's a group on Facebook called uh, The End is Near, So Let's Drink Beer. And um, I have a feeling they're going to increase by some numbers here. Uh, it was formed during 2020, obviously. And I mean, it's got like, there's thousands of people in this Facebook group. And every once in a while, they'll have these gatherings. And so I was at one the other night. Um, the owner of Good News Brewing opens up in, uh, his, his, uh, his places, and they, they'll do these gatherings. And I was having a conversation with, somebody, with a guy, and, and we were just talking about general things. Like, I was asking him questions about himself, and he had kind of talked through some political applications of religion and faith. Um, and then he said, hey, I, I just want to be uh, honest with you. I want to be upfront right off the bat. I want to tell you that I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I said to him, I want to tell you, first of all, thank you for being honest. And I agree. You're not a Christian. That, that's the litmus test. And I'm so grateful that you're aware of that. Like, it's not the political applications here. It is the physical resurrection of Jesus. And thank you. That was great. Half the people are like, ah, you can be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. I'm like, that, no, that, like, that is the definition. So that's like saying you can be tall and be short. It, like, and I, I had, a, and then we spent 30, 40 minutes talking about the resurrection. And it was, it was glorious. 
Um, when it comes to engaging in public faith, I, I, so these are just some of the encounters, and I'm sure you've had these as well. I despise so many of the sales pitches, right? How can I get you into a new faith today? Um, there is certainly a growing cultural resentment of Christianity. Uh, we may not see it as much in St. Charles, uh, but in many urban and coastal regions, Christianity is, is very much in the minority. Uh, and, and I want to say that I think that's okay. Uh, historically, followers of Jesus have done their best work when they've been at the margins. So how does Peter help us out here? He, he writes to this group, persecution, what are we after? And we talk about sharing our faith. At the same time, there is something to the fact that we talk most about the things that we love most. Right? Nobody's ever felt embarrassed to say, let me tell you about my favorite mechanic. Let me tell you about the Cardinals. Do you have a few minutes? Could I tell you about the Cardinals? We need pitching. We don't need Juan Soto. Come at me. All right. Um, so there's something to that. So there's something to that. Um, I think it might be helpful to have a reset or reorientation of, and what, of asking this question, what is good? What is human good? What is good for human flourishing? What is good for justice? What is good for harmony? What is good for sexuality? What is good for women? What is good for human economy? And not just my pocketbook or my retirement, like Jeremy talked about earlier, what is good for the whole? What is good? What is good for the culturally marginalized? If God designed the world to be good, then what does it look like to be good and how can that happen and what stands in the way and what does it look like for the delivery driver what does it look like for the barista what does it look like for the homeless guy what does it look like for somebody who is a business leader or who is a ceo what does it look like for somebody who's been wounded by the church and here's the deal we may look at that and go yeah yeah that's good but peter's not naive enough to think that just because you might be for the good of ho of the whole that people are going to be like, yeah, yeah, that's good. Because human nature, we don't, we're not after really what is good. We are after what we want, especially in our culture. And we're going to hit this a lot more in the fall, but Freud is wrong. I'm just going to tell you that right now. There's your spoiler. Freud would say that the worst thing in any human is a desire unfulfilled. And I will tell you Freud is wrong. Any psychologist worth their salt will tell you Freud is wrong. Um, we often chase our most immediate desire to be fulfilled. Again, diet, I, really unhealthy cinnamon roll this morning. That's not good for me. Traveling, YOLO, do what you want, buy that new gadget, whatever experience, relational, sexual, uh, money, accumulate all the wealth, we want it and, and we want it now and our culture just feeds it to us. Our rights, our freedoms. What do you mean by our? You know, mine. 
Our most immediate desire is, is rarely good for us. Doc, I will do whatever it takes to get healthy. You just tell me what I need to do to get healthy. All right, well, you should eat more vegetables, drink less beer, and exercise. Anything at all, Doc. You just tell me. And there, is there a pill? This is why at Refuge we're big on habits and practices because our desires need to be shaped. They need to be refined and cultivated. Our desires, your desires, and you know this, whatever area you want to apply it to, you know. Our desires need to be told no every once in a while. Our bad ones need to be starved. Our good ones need to be fed over and over and over again. And that's hard, and that takes a lifetime of practice. And this is why we're big on the habits and practices of the church. The early New Testament church, Larry Hurtado was a New Testament scholar, and he said there were five distinct ways that that Christians in the New Testament gave up their own personal desires for the sake of the whole, uh, for the good of the world around them. And this is what's happening in in Peter's world here. Um, It was multicultural. It was inclusive. It involved people from every tongue and tribe. And it didn't go easy, but it did happen. People would sit down across the table from people that were nothing, that had been former enemies culturally. Ethnic, racial, and economic boundaries were, were fought past, and that was actually quite startling. There was a deep care and concern for the poor and the marginalized. And you need to understand, up until this point, I know it's, it's, it, is, it is in vogue now, but up until this point, if you were handicapped as a child, you were worthless. You were a future laborer. Actually, I'll get to that one in a second. When you think back through the Gospels, think about who Jesus stopped and helped as beggars. Blind, lame, sick. The outsider actually created children. Saw the value in children. That they were more than just future laborers. Weak and frail children were often left for dead. They became beggars. Early Christians gave tremendous value to children, worked hard against infanticide and abortion. They would care for children left outside of the temple prostitutes. They formed orphanages. There was a deep care for life. There was a radical commitment to marriage and sexual fidelity. Sometimes, just in poor, hist- a poor history, we think everybody was firm, like everybody lived in a certain way up until the 1960s, and that's when the revolution happened. Man, let me tell you something. Greek and Roman culture, we got nothing on them with the sexual revolution. Like, it's crazy. There were some Jewish conservative factions, but Gentiles, Greeks, and Romans, man. And the idea that there was this Lifelong fidelity was huge and looked ridiculous in the face of the culture. And then they did all these things with nonviolence. 
So here again, in the, in the ancient world, the way to get your point was to kill your enemies. Christians, early Christians, didn't kill their enemies. They died for them. Peter gives this strange encouragement to these followers of Jesus that when they are, in fact, persecuted for, for wanting good, when they face persecution, it can actually strengthen their faith and their hope in their Savior, who was also persecuted for righteousness' sake. So let's get back to the text here. And this, this is the hard part. <laughs> But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Um, some of you may have heard this passage, or at least a part of this passage before, right? First uh, Peter 3.15. Uh, be ready to give a defense. Um, let, me, let me first say this. Being ready to give a defense does not mean that we should be a defensive people. Okay? That doesn't mean we are to be defensive. Uh, apologetics is the study of the defense of the faith. Apologetics can be wonderful when it grows your faith, when you learn that there are trustworthy examples, when you look through history and you see good and bad, when you see the evidences of the resurrection and how that took place historically, uh, this can be really, really helpful when it helps you grow in some assurances in your faith, when it helps you ask questions for other people to uncover some of our presumptions and, and maybe ask questions that we haven't asked before. But it's terrible when it leads us to be defensive in trying to win arguments. And let me tell you something, I struggle with this. And it has nothing to do with apologetics, it has everything to do with my defensiveness because I'm a Gen Xer and I want to be seen and I want to be understood. But like this is, I struggle with like apologetics and getting argumentative and wanting to win. So that, there's, that's my confession. Um, What happened with believers in first century Asia Minor was the ways that they conducted their lives communally and individually, or when they were looked at suspiciously because they welcomed foreigners in their homes, and after all, they could be dangerous. And above all of this, their symbol of these nut jobs was a, a torture device for criminals. So it probably wasn't like people coming up to them and going, hey, Tell me about this hope that's in you. It was probably being mocked and laughed at. And Peter says, when this happens, don't fight fire with fire. Fight fire with water. Tell the resurrection of Jesus. Don't return mocking for mocking. Don't get defensive or sarcastic or angry. But with gentleness and respect, convey the love of Jesus compels me. Finally, Peter says, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Um, this small group of committed people to the ways of Jesus would, in fact, hang in there. And the community they would form would not meet church growth standards of our day. They would not, none of these believers in Asia Minor would be asked to go to a church growth conference. 
Um, uh, they would not radically multiply or launch new campuses with each with multiple service times, uh, but they would remain faithful and they would persevere. Flash forward about 300 years, uh, and this group of Jesus followers in Asia Minor, easily under 10% of the population, maybe even closer to 5% of the population. And this guy comes in, Constantine, he has a vision, he sees it, very long and complicated story. Short, he pursues followers of Jesus to help explain this vision that he saw in the sky. And by the time Constantine died, it was no longer culturally dangerous to be a follower of Jesus, and it had in fact become culturally beneficial for the first time ever to be a Christian. And Christendom would sweep through Western culture. Now, if you say, well, that was all bad or that was all good, chances are good you don't have a good grasp of history. Nothing in history was all bad or all good. All, everything is complex and nuanced. Uh, and there was a lot of good, and then there was a lot of bad. Um, but what happened is Christianity went into work with the state. And this is what happened everywhere. Every region, every nation was defined by a religion. But Christianity was never designed to be the ruling religion of the state. And here we are, 1,700 years later, by large Christendom, Christianized culture is dead. And I will tell you, it's okay. But the world we live in now is not the same as the one that Peter was writing to. We now live in a post-Christian world in which some will fight to hang on to Christendom. And you need to know that Christian, a Christendom is not synonymous with following Jesus. Some will fight hard to hold on to Christendom. Others will fight to hold on to some kingdom ethics, mostly having to do with justice, while simultaneously overthrowing the king, which will get very confusing. It already has gotten very confusing and it will be a constantly moving target whereby the righteous have to stay ahead of the cultural game and never, ever, ever be able to see themselves as part of, uh, as contributors to the problem. And it will not produce love as is often marketed, it will produce suspicion. And this makes it complicated to live out the reality of following Jesus, let alone share the message of Jesus in our day. Yeah? What would Peter say to those in 21st century America seeking to follow Jesus with this backdrop? Again, someone will look at Western lens, there's kind of a self-loathing, and we're like, ah, all Westernism is bad. And then someone will look at Western Christianity and say, none of it's bad, it is pure and undefiled. And again, I'd say that's probably naive for both of us. I realize that was a bit of a history lesson that happened really, really fast, but does anybody else feel this tension? Okay. Yes, I am a Christian, but not like that. <laughs> so how do we do this? I have some thoughts here. We're going a little long. Um, let me, I want to confess to you as a pastor Nothing makes me question my calling to preach or pastor or really have any kind of spiritual 
authority more than this question. I wish I could give you a straight answer without feeling the need for asterisks after every, you know, be bold, but I mean not like, not that kind of bold. Be confident, but not like arrogant, but like, you know, be humble, don't, but don't get like walked over. I'm not just saying you capitulate to everything. And ah, there's an old Derek Webb song that gives me comfort on this for both me and Derek Webb. <laughs> um, those who have ears. Uh, there, there was a life before my life. There was provision before my need. There was redemption before my sin. And for the sake of the world, I thank the Lord that the truth's not contingent on me. The truth was not contingent on this small group of followers of Jesus in Asia Minor. They remained faithful. And it's not contingent on me. The church will be just fine, even though right now it doesn't seem like it. So here are some things to think about as we navigate this. Um, I'm not going to give you black and white stuff. I'm not going to give you a guaranteed result on how to share Jesus and 100% effectiveness every time. Uh, I had a pastor say one time, he's like, give me, give me 30 minutes with someone, with anyone, and I guarantee you they will follow Jesus. And I was like, wow. I don't have that. Um, here's some things to think about. First, clarify the hope that is in you. What is the hope that is in you? Too many followers of Jesus in the 80s and 90s, we were taught how to share a gospel that we never actually experienced. We didn't ever, we didn't ever get to experience grace and forgiveness. We just went out and preached it with like car wrecks and fires on stage and, and all that stuff. Um, we're not salesmen. We're witnesses. Is the hope of the resurrection in you enough to disrupt your way of life? Is it comforting in times of trial, but is it also a challenge in times of comfort? Does it mess with your political ideologies? Or do you fit it nicely into all of your other categories? Does it have a budget item, or does it affect your whole budget? What does it mean for you to declare your allegiance to Jesus? And I will say this as well. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus or you have questions or you're going to walk out into a, a group of like hostile family members or whatever, let me, let me give this for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you uh, to be honest in your own questions. Listen, Christianity has been majority culture for a long time, which means it's going to be manipulated and abused, just like any other religion is in any other part of the world where any other religion is engaged. Is, is, is the head. I sat down to do a class with a Muslim imam uh, and, a, and a, a Jewish rabbi, and, and everybody was looking at me like, Christians are so oppressive. And I, oh, thank you, Jesus. The imam was like, well, but you know, in the Middle East, Muslims are oppressive. And I was like, <laughs> and then my friend Rory was like, and, and in Jerusalem, guys, come on, you know this, you know, Jews that are the head of the state, they're oppressive in, in Israel. And I was like, all right, so a little grace, Come on. Um, none was to be offered because we've done some bad things. It's been manipulated by the heads of state, by people in power. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, yes, look at those and understand those arguments. But I would encourage you, don't pick the low-hanging fruit. Look for genuineness. 
and then ask questions about that. Ask questions of the best of what it means to follow Jesus, not of the easy outliers. And then I would say ask those questions with gentleness and respect, if you can. Followers of Jesus, another thought, uh, be humble. Be humble. People have been hurt. Um, A simultaneous truth with that is hurt people hurt people. So be humble, but don't get bit. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't get healing. They get bitter. And that's hard. That should cause us to weep. You can be a wounded healer. Um, Another thing, listen. A lot. And when you think you, all you've done is listen, listen some more. We don't have to win arguments. <laughs> I have to, oh, this is me. Because I'm like, oh, yeah? Yeah, we do. We don't. The Holy Spirit does the work, not our arguments. And at the same time, at the same time, when you listen, know what you believe. Let that, let that drive into you. Don't, you don't have to be caught off guard. Um, the old ways of doing things are not always the best ways, but simultaneously, new is not always good. G.K. Chesterton had a great line where he said, before you remove a gate, always check to see why it was put there in the first place. Don't be so quick for new and shiny. We just take everything that comes with it, but also be willing to see and acknowledge and repent for the abuses of justice that should have no place in Christianity. Next, public favor is a dangerous mistress. Every cultural movement will find their way into and out of public favor. It's a dangerous mistress. And oftentimes throughout history, the crowd, the ones that are all riled up, are usually wrong. (laughs) None of us is as dumb as all of us. Um... So beware, beware of our pursuits that look toward political favor or public accolades. Beware of always looking for high fives in your own locker room. Peter would tell these believers, don't seek after persecution. So don't be a public jerk. But bearing witness to Jesus is also not just playing to the crowd. You may get booed by both sides. Being lights in the dark generation, this is something I think is important. I'm just going to take a second on this. Being a distinctive community, community does not being, be, being a distinctive community does not mean being religious as opposed to the irreligious. Jesus faced persecution from the religious and from the irreligious. Following Jesus can get booze from both sides. B-O-O-E-S. B-O-O-S. Not B-O-O-Z-E. Booze. Boo. At this point, I've lost it. Um, Finally, finally, followers of Jesus, our lives take a lot of time. Our stories take time. You will have days. I have days where I'm confident and things are well, and I have days where I am just crushed. Guilt, shame. I notice over time that shame loses its voice. We're going to hit this later on the semester two sides to dealing with shame. 
One side uh, wants to be fueled by shame. As long as my shame is, I can hide it, then I can look down on you. That's more the religious side. The other side wants to eliminate shame where shame doesn't exist, just do whatever you want. And I'm telling you, that won't work. That won't work. Forgiveness of shame is a whole new ball game. How to walk in that. Devote yourselves to faithfulness. The people that the world needs most right now are not at have a conversation this week with someone about Jesus. And it may get awkward, and that's awesome, and that's okay. And let me free you. Do not close the sales deal. Learn how do I have a conversation with somebody about Jesus. What you'll find is most people have no problem telling you what they believe. You can ask questions, but you can also convey, this is what I believe. Have a conversation. Learn how to just have these conversations. And if somebody just like goes off, oh, you Christians, you all think you're the same. You, know, all you, you think you're better than everybody else. Yeah, I hear you. You may blow it. You may nail it. But like, have an awkward conversation. And may God add his blessing for it to be glorious. And listen, just the Holy Spirit may direct you to a person. You've been like, you might be like, you know what, there's somebody that I've wanted to have a conversation with. And I, that, this is, that, that was the good reminder that I need to do that. Or the Holy Spirit may just be like, uh, I'm directing you to all people. Have a conversation. You don't have to use cheesy lines. I'm praying that none of you have a barista this week that's Ethiopian. Um, but just like have that conversation engage in public faith learn what it is to, to, to talk about these things alright, good? sorry I went long let's pray thank you Jesus that uh, man, that you um have redeemed and forgiven your people and that you are patient and bearing with us and that the, even the testimony of the fact that your people have survived is miraculous. So I pray that we would feel a measure of courage without the pressure that we have to save people because we can't. And at the same time, I pray that we would learn how to have these conversations, how to talk about Jesus and how to talk about you in a way that is... Um, conveying what we love most. We're not trying to sell people. We're not trying to convince people into the kingdom. We're simply sharing about someone who has changed our lives. May we be after what is good. May we be humbled by grace and forgiveness. And uh, yeah, thank you for loving us, even and especially when we blow it. In your name we pray, amen. building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.